Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the very word of God. We have titled our study of Romans as Real Hope for the Righteousness of God. And for the past 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul treated us to a theology of mercy and a doctrine of grace by the God who shows kindness to sinners and grants them eternal hope and his own righteousness. Because of this, we have full assurance that the righteous shall live by faith and see the glory of God. But the world has been soaked with unrighteousness. In chapter 1, we see that humanity wants to conform to the passions of this world, and not only that, wants others to conform as well. People became futile in their thinking, debasing their bodies and decaying their minds, sacrificing truth for the worship of idols, not discerning that God's patience should not be seen as delay, but rather as his merciful waiting for repentance. In chapter 2, the Lord is merciful and just. In chapter 3, his judgment is righteous, while every human has fallen short of his glory. In chapters 4 and 5, justification in all of human history and peace with God come by one and the same faith through abounding grace. The faith God grants in chapter 6 and 7 sets captives free from sin so that they can offer themselves freely as slaves for righteousness once released from the law. In chapter 8, he fulfills the law and condemns sin, giving the promise of eternal glory. And in chapters 9 through 11, this promise of salvation is dependent on divine mercy and electing grace, which he shows in his kindness toward unbelievers, while Jew, whether Jew and Gentile, both of whom have no reason to boast, but only to magnify the depth of the riches, wisdom, and knowledge of our God. Paul ends his 11-chapter exposition with a doxology proclaiming from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All things are his preeminently the people he has redeemed for himself, his church. Chapters 12 through 15 will show us how God gifts his people for the sake of living in love and unity, how Christians should conduct themselves toward insiders, outsiders, and the governing authorities, how believers give themselves to obeying his commands, how the body of Christ is marked by peace, hope, and light, how believers outdo one another in humility, showing honor to Christians and to Christ. How in Christ, differences are not nullified, but rather find their truest and best expression in unity of worship of the one true God and for his glory. Today's two verses serve as an introduction to the next four chapters. One can talk for hours on the word, therefore. But the brief version is that all the prior good theology leads to right living. 
So Paul moves from wonderful and true doctrine to the proper response, which is right practice through total commitment and complete surrender. He beseeches the believers in Rome based on all the mercies of God that he has so eloquently presented for 11 chapters. He could have appealed on the basis of grace, which has also been weaved into the fabric of this letter, but he chose mercy. Mercy is a language that the guilty can understand. The Roman believers and you and I know very well how guilty we are of unrighteousness. I want you to imagine this image of mercy from the, from the Psalms of a guilty person devoid of any honor or strength on his face and on his knees before the throne of mercy, before the throne of God. One hand covering his face and one hand barely able to beg, fearing the wrath that is to come, knowing that the guilt cannot be hidden with witnesses on either side and the holy temple of God, knowing how guilty we are of unrighteousness. The guilty person is undone before the throne of the Holy One, bracing for wrath to be poured out, only to hear the words, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. There is not now, nor will there ever be, any condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Then a river of mercy pours out from underneath his throne, with deep waters, delicious waters of mercy for you and I to drink from and to remember his mercies. These are the mercies that Paul is appealing on the basis of. And Paul makes no distinction any longer between Jews or Gentiles because they are all, by the mercies of God, brothers and sisters, as you and I are today, in the body of Christ, united to Christ, who is the head. Whether I believed first, or you were grafted later, or his lineage traces itself to the roots, or her leaves were on a different tree and a different branch. Once we are in Christ, from him and through him and to him belong all things, especially, preeminently, his church that he has redeemed for himself. The church is a community of redeemed beggars of mercy coming together in unity, each and all consecrated to the service and glory of God. Each member is now called to holy living and true worship through the two pillars of our relationship with God this text presents before us, consecrated bodies and renewed minds. And we apply, when we apply both body and mind to the truth of God, we can discern our third point for today, which is the will of God for righteous living. First, consecrated bodies. Now, Paul often uses language of consecration or actually of begging to entreat his readers to obey the commands of God. He appeals to the Corinthians by the name of God to forego divisions and become united in mind at judgment. He urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel by which they have been saved, worthy of their calling. Here he is appealing to the Romans as if he is speaking to priests. For in the Old Testament, priests were the ones who consecrated themselves and the congregation and presented the bodies of animals as dead sacrifices for various offerings. But now that we are in the new covenant, there's no longer need to offer dead animals, and praise God for that. 
For Christ, who is our high priest, is himself our living sacrifice. Having died for sin once for all and been resurrected to live, intercede, and be exalted through all eternity. In this new covenant, we ourselves, like the Roman believers, have become priests. Right? We are priests and kings. We are priests who are being called to consecrate ourselves. We have no more need for a human mediator, for we have one mediator whose blood is both efficient and sufficient. We have no more need for a sheep, a goat, a bull, a pigeon, or a dove. For God does not only demand what we can give, but he demands our entire being, body and soul, to belong to him. As priests, priests, we are neither to give nor to be a one-time sacrifice, but to present our entire selves as a continual living sacrifice, an offering, holy and wholly consecrated to him. H-O-L-Y and W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy and wholly consecrated to him. We who are in Christ must die to sin, put its deeds to death, and live sacrificially for the sake of him who loved us. Now, sacrifice is a buzzword in our Christian dialect. Many people often feel the need to remind God of how much they sacrifice for him. But this is the only place in the New Testament where Christians are called to live sacrificially. David Livingston, who was known as Africa's greatest missionary, suffered a lot having been attacked by a lion, lost almost his arm and his eye, and uh, having had several bouts of malaria, and eventually died on his knees in Zambia while he was praying. He once said, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered as a sacrifice? He's considered one of the heroes of the British Empire, having been consecrated by the king to go and discover the birthplace of the Nile, and he did. He discovered Victoria Falls. He was also Africa's greatest missionary. So he said, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered as a sacrifice? Away with the word sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. All troubles, and here he inserts a list of adversities that he has been through. All troubles are nothing compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. And brothers and sisters, if we take the whole Word of God as our counsel, we find that there is really nothing we can lose eternally by living for him temporally. He who has been rich in mercy has called us from guilt and death into the freedom of living for him. In all of human history and the history of its religious endeavors, this is the only one where living sacrificially guarantees that you live eternally. The world of Rome at the time of Paul and all around us today is replete with examples of people who want to live for themselves in unholy ways, unacceptable to God. That is idolatrous worship, giving oneself to anything that is not God. Chapter 1 lists a lot of examples, and for the sake of time, we'll not go over them. But it's easy for us to compare and determine that we are not that bad. Or that we don't do these things. We are better than them. But Christian, do not boast 
and the mere avoidance of evil because it does not mean the pursuing of righteousness. Many unbelievers may avoid evil acts and praise the Lord for that. And many may even do great deeds that might put you and I to shame, but they don't have faith. Nor are we to fall back into trying to fulfill the law because Christ, our sacrifice, and our priest is the end of law for righteousness to everyone who believes. One of the commentators said, in spite of our newness in Christ, holiness is neither automatic nor inevitable. We have to pursue holiness. That's why we are called to train and righteousness, and strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's why the presenting of our bodies must be an act of ongoing worship. Ongoing worship. Holy and acceptable. I know that in some of our hearts, somewhere, the alarm of legalism is starting to ring. But beware. The works of the body that we are talking about here are not for salvation. This is not salvation legalism. This is for people who have been saved and have tasted of the mercies of God. These works follow our salvation. Nor are Paul's imperatives human rules added to God's rules like those he will talk about later, like the Pharisees did or like the ones he will address in chapter 14 where people were passing judgment on some others over disputable matters. So this is not rule legalism. And even more, the third point is that it's not a desire to control the church or find fault in sheep by exercising a superior tone. There's no Jew or Greek. We're all the same before God. So this is not a matter of a legalism of tone that someone is exercising over others. Au contraire, it is opposed to these. And it is, hedge, it is a hedge against preferential application of one rule over another. Because we present our entire beings, body and soul, to God our King. So a disposition of consecration with thankfulness for God's mercies is marked by humility, integrity, guarding our tongues from evil, speaking truth, avoiding gossip, speaking grace, turning our eyes from worthless things, seeing the plight of the needy, running from the shedding of blood, pursuing justice and mercy running the race well, prioritizing the things of God, making disciples, working as if we were anointed for ministry, whatever we are, and many, many more things that we do for the glory of God. This is true worship, which is the focus of most of our New Testament instructions. A side note here, worship is not what we do for one, an hour and a half, or depending how long I go on the sermon, two hours on a Sunday. In fact, most of the New Testament does not address that. It addresses individual practices of the Christian faith and how we ought to live our lives. Worship is, encompasses all that we do day in and day out, every minute of our day. The spiritual worship of God engages our bodies to understand that a holy, acceptable, and living sacrifice has calluses on its knees from fervent prayer, do you have calluses on your knees? A holy and acceptable worship rises early in the morning to praise God, remembers him at noon, 
meditates on him in the evening and remembers his promises in the watches of the night. These are not my words. This is the word of God. There's no greater incentive to holy living than contemplating the mercies of God, says John Stott. There is no greater incentive to holy living than contemplating the mercies of God. For the past few weeks, I found myself, every time I meditate on the mercies of God, I am called, I'm being called to live a holy life for our King. This is why Paul appeals by the mercies of God and brings this thought to spiritual worship before he addresses the mind. For worship is not only a matter of bodily functions, though we would do well to engage our brains, ears, eyes, mouth, tongues, heart, hands, bodies, and feet in our corporate and private worships. But worship is all-encompassing, body and spirit. This is one of my favorite quotes from Archbishop William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1940s during the Second World War. He says, Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of mind by His truth, the purifying of imagination by His beauty the opening of the heart to his love, and the surrender of will to his purpose. And all this gathered up in adoration is the greatest of human expressions of which we are capable. You see, worship must involve all of you and all of me so that we can see everything we do through the lens of holiness and the glory of God. We are to be holy as he is holy. That's the standard. We are to live acceptably acceptably to him, not just to us. We are to conform our ways to his commands. Which brings us to the second point. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This world entices us to conform our ways to its immorality. While the gospel speaks of unity among believers with different backgrounds and gifts, the world seeks uniformity. Rather than seeing individual skills and attributes as gifts from God, the world seeks to melt them all in a pot of uniformity where every mind is instructed to become close to the things of God and conform to the things of this world. You don't have to look far in history to see this. This is happening every single day. In fact, many have succumbed to modern secular thought of simple or mere morality and individual spirituality. Everyone is spiritual today. Without the true substance or truth of the Christian faith. When this faith, the Christian faith, is lived out, It pervades all realms of life, personal, familial, private, corporate, social, cultural, political, vocational, educational, and every aspect of our lives, tethering them to the unchanging doctrines of the Christian faith, which recognizes all things are truly, irrevocably, and sovereignly under the eternal control of God and within the holy realm of his dominion. Now, we need to be clear about two things here. First, this world means the sinful age, with all things 
in it that entice us away from the truth. It does not mean the things that God gives us, both by his providence and by his grace, to enjoy and to give him thanks for. Because he gives us good gifts every single day, and he gives you and I daily bread. Second, we don't have to be fully given over to depravity to have been conformed to this world. C.S. Lewis's Crutape Letters is a treatise in what it means to be sufficiently interested in the things of this world or sufficiently drifted away from the truth to eventually lose interest in whatever is true, holy, and praiseworthy. An airplane has to deviate but one degree and it will never get to its destination. Or a space shuttle might discover a different galaxy or rather die in space if it moves but one degree from its trajectory. Similarly, a mind that is fixed on this world drifts away from godly beliefs and distorts our perceptions of truth, leading us to wrong behaviors and sinful results. At its own peril, it pridefully ignores correction and discipline, looking down on others, thinking it's better than other people. It isolates from them. It even feels threatened by the faithful. might even raise the flag of legalism. It avoids challenges, and so it does not grow. It gives up easily. And if it is challenged, it becomes defensive and might even turn to anger, frustration, or resentment. Eventually, such a mind moves to the periphery and then walks away. I was reading uh, a, uh, an article um, within the last 10 days or so about a, uh, a Middle Eastern person who grew up in a traditional religious setting, Christian setting, uh, in the Coptic Orthodox Church, and he was a deacon, then he came to the U.S., became a believer, became an evangelical pastor, then slowly became seeker-sensitive, That's his own words. Then he moved to mainline Protestantism. Then he led his church in embracing LGBTQ um, mindset. Then he started a website that rates churches based on if they are affirming or non-affirming. And then he moved away from the faith entirely. And guess what he does now? He meets with people in Southern California every week to talk about Bitcoin. The problem with such a mindset is that if we cease to believe in God or to drift away from him, the problem is that is not that we believe in something else, is that we can believe in anything else. And God wants our whole, our whole being, body and mind, to be his, to belong to him. The mindset that is not fixed on God does, does not see God's infinite power in creation and transformation and truncates sanctification by not prayerfully pursuing his work in its life. Eventually, conforming to this world can only lead to regression, decay, despair, and death. But God's mercies appeal to us to leave behind a closed mind and a worldly mindset, 
they beg us to be transformed, paving the way for us to be renewed in our minds by opening them to his truth, guiding us to submit our will to his will, correcting our thoughts through giving us holy beliefs and right perceptions of what God has intended for us by his grace. He does not only change what we do, he changes what we desire to do. He wants us to love him with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. He is both growing us in faith and expecting us to grow. Where our mind is being renewed by deeper and longer immersion in his truth. Meditating on his ways and walking in the works he has prepared for us. And guess what? There is fullness of joy in time with him. And we should have a desire in walking with him with all our heart and seeking him with all our mind. And the truth of the matter is the longer we walk with him, the more he will unfold of himself, reveal his character and delight us in himself. The more we will see his light and be transformed by his truth, the better we will endure, the more we will see our identity as Christians, children of the Most High, adopted heirs of God, beloved sons and daughters of the King, and fellow heirs with Christ. You and I may have different roles in this world, and I think we all do here, but we have one identity in Christ. Knowing this truth will direct our minds to not see our roles as our defining features, so that when the role changes, we would lose our identity. But we will see them through the lens of our identity in Christ as our minds are being renewed day after day, so that we would accept any role he gives us as a divine task, a privilege by the eternal king, an assignment by the God of the universe, whose omnipotence is standing ready by our side to see that we succeed in our roles for our good and for his glory. We spoke about omniscience a minute ago. God's omnipotence is by our side. The language of renewal is common in both Old and New Testament. One of the most famous verses, you probably know it, David's Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It is a yearning to return to the truth of God and to approach his holy throne. In the New Testament, Paul says to the Ephesians, put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is renewal. It's putting off, removing those old dirty glows, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and then putting on the new self. That is Christ. That is transformation. To the Colossians, Paul expands his, this over several verses, 17 verses, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. For the sake of time, we'll, I'm not going to read them, but Paul has imperatives and commands to set the mind on things that are above, to let go of sin and passions, to put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of God. This is metamorphosis. This is the word that Paul is using here, transformation. It's a complete makeover of who we are. It's a new identity in Christ. It's a new spirit. It's a new life. 
And brothers and sisters, one of the methods of not conforming to the passions of our former ignorance is sometimes to set barriers and fences. What's the use of such fences if we are always peeking over and looking to the other side with yearning? And such is the state of many of our hearts. No wonder we keep falling. Because we put that fence and we keep looking forward at what is behind. But renewing our mind is not only setting up fences and forgetting what is behind, or at least trying to forget what is behind, but looking forward and yearning to the throne of God, to His holiness, to His presence, and to the glory that is coming. That is not escapism. God wants us to seek Him with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul and all our strength. If we find this is a weight, then there's a problem with our mind. And it's an even more reason that it needs to be renewed. We should seek Him every single day, knowing that we belong body and mind to God our King. The gospel comes with the present real promise of a future glorious reality for the children of God who are already in the kingdom in which we are being transformed from one glory to another. We just sang the song, to turn your eyes upon Jesus. I hope you meant it. It's like, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim because the more we look upward, the more we see clearly and we forget what is behind. The best hedge against what is behind is not to put a fence and look over it, is to look ahead. If you look ahead, you forget what is behind. If you keep looking behind, at one point, you might fall. I hope you're getting this. I hope you're listening daily to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that is in us. I'm speaking this to myself as well, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and to do it with joy and much anticipation that God wills our sanctification and guarantees our glorification. This brings us to Paul's final statement on discerning the will of God, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Once more, the language of discerning is common language that Paul uses. In Ephesians 5, he calls believers who were once darkness to walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to God. To the Thessalonians, he says, we know that the will of God is our sanctification. We are called to test all things and hold fast to what is good. Now, testing here does not mean that you taste of everything as you would do at a um, frozen yogurt shop. Because if you've been there, you've tasted of everything and then you leave satisfied and full, right? No, you don't try the sin, like at a frozen yogurt shop, to discern. And you don't try to see how close and how far you can go before you sin. Because a lot of people ask that question, how far can I go before I sin? But Proverbs 24 and 9 says, the thought of foolishness is sin. The thought of foolishness is sin. 
nor do you play Russian roulette with the Word of God and randomly open the Bible in hope of figuring out what you should do based on what what you see there. I think someone said once opened up and it was the book of Kings and it said David went down somewhere and he said, oh, I must go south then today. This is not what the Word of God is there for. No, we train our body in habits of worship and we open the Word of God to immerse our mind in it and to make it the standard by which we test all things because it never changes. It is always pointing to what is good, righteous, holy, and acceptable to God. The God of the universe has given us pieces of his mind and glimpses of his thought in his word. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, in the revealed things that belong to us and to our children after us. You want to know what the will of God is? Read his word. It's always good, always acceptable, always perfect. Psalm 119, verse 96 says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. The very next verse says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The law of God, his commandment, his word is the standard of living and of all true ethics, never changing, unlike this world that is passing away with its ever with its ever changing moralities and ethics and standards. The will of God and the will of this world that are not compatible. They're going in opposite directions. One way leads to death, the other leads to life. Again in Deuteronomy chapter thirty, we are told his commandment is not too hard, nor is it far off. I have set for you before you today life and good, death and evil. If we discern which is which and choose life, we will love him, obey his voice, hold fast to him, and we would be and he would be our life and our length of days that we may dwell with him. Because only a consecrated body and a renewed mind can pass the test and discern the pleasing, holy will of God. So for 11 chapters, Paul has been proclaiming the mercies of God on people, on you and me, who have become futile in their and our minds by conforming them to this world and giving over their and our bodies to the passions of this world and its corrupt body, its debased mind, and its will that is opposed to God. In chapter 6, right in the middle of those 11 chapters, we find the call to present ourselves as instruments of righteousness. And here Paul brings it home, all of ourselves, body and soul. God demands both. He wants all of you and all of me. This may sound like a lot, but the sooner we feel the immense weight of the mercies of God and the holiness of his will, the sooner we will commit body and mind to him who is faithful to transform us into the likeness of Christ. This is the one sacrifice where we do not die as we offer ourselves, but we go on living, and we go on living eternally. Now, lest we think that it's all about me or you presenting our bodies and minds, 
Paul will go on for the rest of this letter to show us what it means practically to live this commitment within the body of Christ, or as we like to say here at Crosstown, to live credible gospel lives in in a credible gospel community. Through such living, the world can see the mercies of God. Through our witness, the world can taste real hope for the righteousness of God. We may be tempted to boast in our discernment of his will, but Paul, in the very next verse, cautions us toward humility. Do not think of of yourself more highly than you ought. Humility which goes against the very grain of self. But the guilty beggar who is prostrate on his face before the throne of mercy gets it. Because when we taste of mercy, the only response like we can have is, why me? And that point before the throne of mercy for you and me should always be a powerful appeal for humility, for holy living, and should still be fresh in our minds. Because it was only a moment ago that you and I received life by the blood of Jesus our Lord.